This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Outbreaks of the COVID-19 virus across the state's prisons and jails last month triggered the state public defender to ask the Hawaii Supreme Court to address this problem of overcrowding. Facilities on Maui, Oahu, and Kauai all saw clusters last month. This morning, HPR Savannah Harriman-Poet spoke with Kat Brady. She's with the Community Alliance on Prisons about the conditions. It's disturbing that Hawaii has been so focused on opening up that the health of the community has really taken a back seat. So I'm glad they actually filed this because I've been looking at the numbers for OCCC. And, you know, since the pandemic started, there's only been one period where there's been like less than 800 or 780 people. And as of April 16th, there were 903 people in OCCC. That's what are we doing? That's Department of Public Safety's population report. I have it in front of me as well from August 16th. And just to break down that number a little bit, there are, as of August 16th, and we should have an updated population report in the next couple of days for the end of the month, 903 people in triple OC. It has an operational bed capacity of 954, but an initial design capacity of 628. (laughs) So, I mean, even the operational capacity is overcrowded, which is why the public defenders have been saying we need to get to design capacity. And actually, all the national research supports that. You know, Doubling and tripling people in cells only increases the spread of this virus. The department has a pandemic response plan, and whenever they're questioned, they waive that plan. But you know what? What really matters is what they do, not what they say. It's really disturbing to me when I'm hearing from inside that they're moving people around. Some people are positive and they haven't been able to get any medical care after they got their test result. What, what, do, what do we think is going to happen in a congregate facility where people are living on top of each other? So it's unventilated, it's overcrowded, and short-staffed. One of the other things that has come out recently is vaccination rates for all of the different state agencies Mm-hmm. The Department of Public Safety reported the lowest vaccination rate among its employees at 77.1%. Now, they did say in a statement that roughly 10% of their employees are on various types of leave and are not mm-hmm. able to report their status yet. If you exclude that group, their vaccination rate is closer to 83%. Additionally, they specify that the vaccine is offered to all department employees through community distribution clinics and mobile points of distribution set up at various facilities over the past year. The department reminds everyone of these opportunities several times a week, and the Department of Public Safety is continuing its effort to expand vaccination opportunities for all correctional staff through an agreement established with the Queen's Health System. The first facility to take part in this education and vaccination program was the Oahu Community Corrections Center. Yes, and I, you know, I I feel for the department because the director, the current director, is only in since December 2020. 
So he inherited a huge mess, and he's been trying to unravel that Gordian knot. And he's really been, I think, doing more than I've seen other directors do in terms of actually considering the health and safety of the people inside. The problem really is in the jails, because that's a dynamic population. People are coming in and out. And I think that's what the director is trying to address um, by dealing with intake, the intake service centers to really have medical people at the intake so that they can see, you know, the, the health condition of people who are being brought in. That, to me, is really proactive and, and, and really important because the jails are really the hotbeds. How can we in conscience send people into a place that we know is a hotbed for disease? And to me, we're we're just, we're incarcerating people who are, you know, on the lowest end of the economic ladder and people who, many who are living unsheltered and they can't pay bail. So they're in jail. And we're spending $219 a day to threaten their health. I, I don't understand why we're doing that. That was Kat Brady, coordinator for the Community Alliance on Prisons, speaking with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote. Savannah also uh, reached out to the Department of Public Safety and got this statement. First, we would like to clarify that the Department of Public Safety does not make the determination as to who should be released. The department is awaiting the decision from the Supreme Court. We support all reasonable efforts made to safely reduce the inmate population while keeping the needs for public safety foremost in mind. The extreme overcrowding our facilities have been burdened with for decades, along with the unique challenges posed by the COVID epidemic, equates to facility conditions, including extreme infrastructure limitations and aging, that push the limits of the staff working there and the inmates incarcerated there. The department began looking in late February 2020 at ways to prepare for a possible worst-case scenario, large-scale planning well before COVID-19 became widespread across the state and before the first case was identified in a correctional facility. The PSD Healthcare Division developed a comprehensive pandemic response plan for all the facilities at that time based upon current guidance from the CDC and approved by the Office of Correctional Health of the American Correctional Association. The facilities are instructed to follow the PSD pandemic response plan, which has been updated several times to stay current with the latest CDC and DOH guidance and recommendations. Each facility has adapted to meet their individual facility needs and are executing their plans to the best of their ability to medically isolate quarantine, and cohort inmates. As of yesterday, over 2,600 Hawaii inmates have contracted COVID-19 while incarcerated, as well as more than 350 correctional staff, and there are reports of at least nine deaths.
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Ancient Hawaii had its warriors, and modern Hawaii has its soldiers. In today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what you know about one of Hawaii's most notable military servicemen. This Hawaiian was born in 1928 and raised in Waianae. After graduating from Waipahu High School in 1948, he studied administration, secretarial work, and accounting at the Cannon Business School. After the start of the Korean War in 1950, he was drafted into the U.S. Army and sent to Korea in 1951. Later that year, he participated in the month-long effort to capture Hill 931, an event now known to Americans as the Battle of Heartbreak Ridge. It was during that engagement that he died, helping his company retreat to safety. For his sacrifice on the battlefield, this Hawaiian soldier was posthumously honored with the U.S. military's highest honor. So what we want to know is, do you know the name of the first Hawaiian to receive the Medal of Honor? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareedHawaii.com. just one day shy of a year that decorated Vietnam vet Chris Dreher died of COVID at the Ukiyo Okutsu facility in Hilo. Dreher's family sued over his death. The virus claimed more than two dozen in this very vulnerable population. HPR's Kuve Hirishi joins us to see where things stand today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. I'm glad you mentioned one of those who have deceased during this COVID-19 outbreak at the Yukio Okutsu State Veterans Home. We've lost 27 of uh, the kupuna or residents in the home. The outbreak also reached as many as 71 residents and also 35 staff. Uh, who were working at the time, and this was sort of just getting started about a year ago last year and peaked in the first three mo- uh, three weeks they tallied those 90 cases. So it spread fast, and um, it really got everyone's attention, especially in nursing homes, about how to properly keep our kupuna safe. And so got to revisit um, 
uh, the new management there right now. And as she says, Kaui Tran, the new administrator for the home, says things are slowly getting back to normal. Uh, the facility is currently COVID-free. Vaccination rates for staff and residents are above 90%, which is a, a good sign. And there is a periodic surveillance testing for those who are not uh, vaccinated staff and, and residents. Um, but the outbreak led to the removal of Avalon Healthcare, that Utah-based uh, company who had been managing the home since it opened back in 2007. And so part of what Shortran has been doing is, one, getting the home back into compliance with state and federal regulations. So right after, maybe a few weeks after the outbreak at the home, uh, state and federal health inspectors went in, surveyed to see what, what had happened. And uh, numerous violations were found in terms of infection control procedures, which, is, which was also common in other nursing homes across the country. And there was also this culture uh, of sort of respecting individual rights of the residents versus the overall well-being of the general population. And that was a finding in the uh, state report. And uh, so part of the training of staff was part of what they're doing right now and making sure they know what uh, the Delta variant is and the changes in protocols that have to happen on account of that. Uh, but the 95 bed facility is a little more than half full right now. So 49 residents and uh, it's fully staffed uh, and in compliance, but also one of the few homes, long-term care facilities in Hawaii right now accepting new residents. Uh, so I spoke to Shortran, uh, who took over management in January, and she's determined to fix some of these challenges. Her focus has been on, on strengthening communities' uh, trust in the facility that they can take care of the kupuna, uh, but also she says it starts with owning up to what had happened because it was, as I said, one-third of the residents had passed away. It was a tragic loss, and uh, acknowledging that was part of her, her sort of her first step. An area of focus that was really, really important for me as an administrator was to ensure that we were acknowledging, acknowledging what took place here and not only focusing in on compliance. We do understand how important compliance is, but really to acknowledge the trauma that might have taken place and how it had affected our staff, our residents, and the Ohana. And that was really key since, you know, we continue to meet with our staff and really informing our staff and keeping them educated as to, you know, what is the Delta variant? How might it affect us all? You know, what are different protocols that we need to initiate in response to this to ensure that we are as safe as we can be? And that's uh, even more so the case now that the surge in COVID-19 Delta variant cases on the Big Island has really taken hold, about 9.2% positivity rate uh, as of this morning, currently the highest in the state, and Shortran says she's ramped up uh, staff training. They've got weekly updates for residents and residents' families on the situation on the ground in the home, and uh, she plans to expand that monthly surveillance testing not only to the, those who are unvaccinated, but all staff, because one of the first cases at the home uh, that started the outbreak was a staff member uh, who was asymptomatic, who came in and didn't know, and so this surveillance testing is really part of uh, her overall approach right now. Yeah, and of course the Delta variant is what uh, I think is like three times more contagious or something like that than the original virus. 
And so just everybody's got to be on their guard. Exactly. And and I think that's something that the entire, uh, not just the residents and residents' family, but also staff are taking very seriously. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was HPR's Ku'uvehi Reishi. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, the continuation of the coronavirus pandemic hasn't stopped blue startups from convening the next cohort of companies. We'll talk to a couple of the companies in Cohort 13, learn what business they are starting, and how they're adjusting to the virtual mentoring and online coaching. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. skies or noisy skies? What's it been like in your neighborhood? Well, the military wants to know. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beach reporter Kevin O'Dell joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So the military isn't to blame for all the helicopter noise that uh, so many people complain about, right? Well, not necessarily. You also have a lot of uh, tour helicopters and other civil aviation that share the skies with it. But I think it's undeniable that the military's presence is noticeable in Hawaii's skies. So they are uh, putting a call out then. Uh, you know, what, what do listeners need to know? Yeah, the Office of Local Defense Community Cooperation is soliciting comments from community members through an online form. There's a link to it in the story that I wrote. Um, and they are accepting comments um, through October 3rd. They've been looking at communities that are experienced uh, more than 65 decibels on a regular basis for military training. And out here, they've identified three facilities, um, Marine Corps Base Hawaii in Kaneohe, uh, Wheeler Army Airfield uh, over by Waiwa, and uh, the Pacific Missile Range facility on Kauai. And so this comes at a time when the military is uh – also uh, talking about renewing the leases of state land for their uh, training, for their exercises. Right. Specifically, the Army is really looking at that right now. Uh, among the places that they want is um, the the Makua Valley, where they do a lot of their aviation training, uh, which is 
their ex- their rationale is that it's the closest to Wheeler Army Airfield and therefore would allow them to do more of this aviation training without flying over more densely populated areas. However, that's a pretty controversial training area for a great deal of reasons. Um, it was meant to be a temporary training ground uh, when it was taken possession of during martial law during World War II, but um, it continues to be a training ground years later, and uh, th- there's, there have been a lot of efforts by Hawaiian uh, cultural practitioners to try to reclaim that land. Uh, right. So it's a very bitter dispute, that particular area. Right, and there's also the land leases over at Pahakaloa on the Big Island. Right, and uh, you, you have, as a result of kind of the overflights, uh, the, the only way for the Army to get their troops and personnel over to that um, particular training ground is usually by flights, um, ferrying troops back and forth on helicopters. And then we're not just talking about helicopters, though, because there is jet noise, too, on Oahu. Um, there is, but um, it that doesn't seem to be the source of the most complaints. However, the the survey does include uh, questions about that. So if anybody has concerns about that, they can certainly weigh in on those. Okay, and so it's really a, a chance, though, for uh, folks to get their two cents across to the, the military about how, I guess, disruptive uh, some of that noise can be. Um, you know, I know we've had listeners call here to say, gosh, you know, my whole house is shaking, uh, you know, when they do these exercises. Uh so, understandably, it would be in the military's best interest to uh, figure out what they can do to mitigate some of this noise. Right. And so some of this stuff may be, not all of it, but a degree of it is going to change naturally already. Um, the Marine Corps, it, as part of its force restructuring, is going to be removing most of its helicopters and has already mo- removed almost all of its attack helicopters uh, from the island as part of a force restructure. And the Blackhawks, now those are the ones that what normally get the most complaints? Uh, on the Army side from Waiwa, that's that's definitely what they told me they get the most complaints from. They, they move in groups, they ferry troops around during training exercises. Um, but they're also used for search and rescue operations by the National Guard, so doing a variety of things out there. Okay, so if you live in uh, uh, in, in the area um, of those uh, sites that were identified, now's your chance to uh, tell the military what you think. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Nodell with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. To understand what we did or didn't do in Afghanistan, we look back at the civil war in our country. That's the focus on the long view with our contributing editor, Neil Milner. Good morning, Neil. Hi. So, yeah, we've been watching this war come to a close. Yes, and it's pretty obvious that we failed in Afghanistan. And around this time, a historian and actually a foreign policy expert named Daniel Byman came out with a study called, a paper called White Supremacy, Terrorism, and the Failure of Reconstruction in the United States. And what he says is a few things. One is that one of the early failed American attempts at counterinsurgency, which is what we tried to do in Afghanistan, was in fact Reconstruction. 
that if you look at Reconstruction, what you had was uh, the victorious side trying to impose some important of their will and laws on the South, and the South was really counterinsurgents. Uh, they mobilized, especially after 1877, a compromise to make uh, um, to make a Republican the president in exchange for pulling all the troops out of there. What you really had is a mobilization of white people based on an ideology of trying to protect what they had before and using an enormous amount of violence and driving out and destroying the successes that black people had had uh, politically and also agriculturally. Just one example, in one year, the KKK in Louisiana, 1868, killed 2,000 black people. So what he says, he said, if you look at this in terms of insurgency and counterinsurgency, you can see why it failed. And... Um, it failed for all kinds of reasons, some of which apply very closely to what happened, what happened in Afghanistan. The first thing was that we never had enough troops that stayed in the South to maintain the kind of order that you wanted, that essentially the South just outweighed the North. The will to stay there started to dissipate as people became less concerned in the North about protecting African-Americans, and more concerned about the preservation of the Union. At the same time, you had this insurgency going on where white people, particularly, were mobilized against this counterinsurgency and were ultimately successful. We used half measures rather than full measures. We didn't arm black people to protect themselves. It was a failure in policy as much as anything else. So he isn't making the argument that Afghanistan is just like this. But if you look at what he says and what he's trying to show is that there really were some lessons about insurgency and counterinsurgency that you can see from Reconstruction. The other point he tried to make, not as important to this discussion, but it's very important generally, is that the lesson you learn from this is very different from the history lessons most of us learned in the civics books in high school. This was not about a compromise. This was not about people coming together. It was about the successful use of violence by an insurgency movement and terror by an insurgency movement that wore out the counterinsurgency, which would be the American North, which was now the American country. Well, you often hear that, you know, if you win the war, you get to write the history in the books, right? Well, that's right. But the South got to write the history in many ways. And I have no trouble understanding because that's the kind of thing. That you didn't learn very much about the plight of African-Americans. You didn't learn about how much systematic violence was there. You don't learn as much about how successful African-Americans were in establishing stuff there. You learned about carpetbaggers and scalawags, which was all about the, the counterinsurgents being the, the outsiders coming in. So, but one of the things that he says helped the, made the Reconstruction fail, because what happens is that for years after that, arguably up to now, there has been an impact that has limited the success of, of African-American uh, people because of that kind of insurgency. There's a recent study, for example, that shows that there is a 
a significant relationship between the southern states that did the most to take away uh, voting rights from African Americans and the voting rights and, and the voting turnout that exists now. So this stuff, stuff sort of lingers. But here's one of the points he makes about Reconstruction. He said, you can't just go there um, and uh, impose a few things, that you really have to bring in the rule of law and bring back democracy. Well, of course, that's one of the things that it was virtually impossible for us to do in Afghanistan, even though for many years that was one of the perpetuating myths that what we could do there is help them establish a democracy. It's extraordinarily hard because it's very hard to impose. And when he said that's what needed to happen in Reconstruction, he doesn't say that it was easy. He just says, without doing that, you got nothing. You know, so I don't know. Then, you know, if you look at the, the war in Afghanistan, you know, what does that mean as you try and draw these parallels? Well, I think each situation is somewhat different. Afghanistan was a long, drawn-out attempt to do some kind of nation building, whatever we called it. In a sense, that's what Reconstruction was trying to do, which was to rebuild the nation, our nation, by bringing in the South into that. What happens over time, in fact, is that people in the South have more will uh, to impose their views, which are different than they are the same. I think what he says is that what you see in the Reconstruction counterinsurgency and its failure is lots of things that you find in other attempts to do some of the same kind of things, even though the other attempts were in other countries. Iraq, he said, maybe Vietnam, and of course Afghanistan. But if you look at how hard it turned out to succeed in the South, lack of will, um, lack of uh, willing to commit the large amount of military presence that was necessary to make this kind of thing happen. The fact that even if you would have had this presence, you were trying to introduce something that's very deep and that's very culturally alien, which is a rule of law and democratic rule that works very much against the, against the terrorists in the South who in fact had lost their power. So you see some of it. It's not an easy analogy, but it reminds us that we've been through these kinds of things before. And it reminds us how hard it is, to, the enormous amount of psychic and financial resources that you need to overcome a willful, strong insurgency movement. And I think that's I don't want to say everybody's given lessons about Afghanistan. I'm not so interested in that to me is kind of presumptuous. But you see some of the difficult things that the, the, the same kinds of dynamics, the same kinds of things that fail over the centuries in different places. Yeah, but I guess if you step back and look to see then, you know, uh, at Vietnam and Iraq. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of self-deception that goes on. There's also a whole lot of deception. But I think that there was a huge difference between what we were telling ourselves about these places and what the experts were telling us about these places and what really happened. And in some ways, that's a lot like Reconstruction, where there was this kind of surfacey view of 
bringing the country together on the basis of the rule of law. At the same time, there were all kinds of half measures and unwillingness to do what you have to do. One of the final points that, that Byron makes is that be very skeptical about compromise. You cannot compromise with terrorists um, because it tends not to work in, in your favor. And I think that that's some of the things, whether it's the hopes of Obama or certainly what I guess Trump had in mind, although that was to me almost more of a, <laughs> it's hard to negotiate when you've already agreed to give up everything, which yeah. is what was there. Yeah, hard lessons to learn, expensive lessons. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Sure. We have been talking with Neil Milner, retired political science professor at the University of Hawaii. back on the Big Island today looking for the native Akepa. And a little bird told us that this little honey creeper is one of our host Patrick Hart's favorites. Here he is with your Manu Minute. Hawaii Akepa are an endangered Hawaiian honey creeper that are found only on the Big Island. As honey creepers, they're descended from an original group of finches that found their way to Hawaii from Asia over 5 million years ago. They're very unusual bird in that the males are bright, almost fluorescent orange, like the color of a traffic pylon, while the females are grayish green with a wash of orange across their breast. Akepa are among the smallest of all honey creepers, weighing only about 10 grams or a third of an ounce. In Hawaiian, Akepa means nimble and quick, which they use to their advantage as they forage high up in the canopy of ohia trees and use their crossed bill to pry open leaf buds in search of insects and spiders. Akepa were once common all over the Big Island, but today they're only found in old-growth ohia and koa forests above about 5,000 feet in elevation. Below that, they can get bitten by mosquitoes that transmit avian malaria and a single bite of a mosquito can mean death for one of these birds. Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge on the windward side of Hawaii Island is one of the best places to hear the pleasant, high-pitched trill of the males as they try to impress the wary females during breeding season. Akepa are also unusual in their obligate cavity nesters. Whereas most other honeycreepers build cup nests in the outer branches of trees, akepa require natural cavities that only form in the trunks and limbs of the biggest and oldest ohia and koa trees. Because of this, the size of the akepa population, estimated to be only about 10,000 birds, is also limited by the amount of high-elevation, old-growth forest that still exists on Hawaii. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com
We are going to take a pause for the second part of our monthly civil defense siren test. Stay with us. We'll be right back right after a moment. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked if you knew the name of the first Native Hawaiian to receive the Medal of Honor. The first Medal of Honor awardees were, uh, were actually presented to six U.S. Army volunteers in March of 1863. The first uh, given to a Hawaiian was in 1952 to a man from Waianae for his actions in the Korean War. During the Battle of Heartbreak Ridge, his company became overwhelmed with fending off assaults from the North Korean Army. As his company retreated to safety, this Hawaiian soldier remained on the battlefield to help fend off the enemy. Eventually, he ran out of ammo and turned to throwing hand grenades. When those were gone, he threw rocks at the attackers before charging them, wielding a knife in one hand and delivering punches with the other. He was soon surrounded and killed by a bayonet. When his platoon retook the position the next day, they found 40 dead North Korean soldiers around his body. We're talking about Herbert Pililaau, the first Native Hawaiian to receive the Medal of Honor. And while we got lots of calls on this backyard quiz, John of Honolulu is our winner. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring community-driven pop-up installations across the museum. HonoluluMuseum.org. Annual membership contributions and program sponsorships from local organizations are critical to fueling the day-to-day -day work of HPR. But there's an additional way to build a lasting future for public radio in Hawaii. Make a gift through your will or estate plan. By including HPR as a beneficiary, you ensure future generations can access the resource that has meant so much to you. For more information, go to hawaiipublicradio.org legacy. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Queens Island Urgent Care, treating non-life-threatening illnesses and injuries at six locations across Oahu. Walk-ins welcome. Learn more at queens.org. A sprinkle here, a sprinkle there. You might be thinking salt and pepper for your meal, but we're turning our attention to cow feed and a seaweed additive. It's already on the menu for local cattle. It's not to enhance your steak, but to reduce the methane gas that cows exude. Think about that. It's enough of a concern that last month the Australian government put up a million dollars to advance its research. But Hawaii is already in the game. The red seaweed in question is limu kohu, a highly, uh, highly prized by Hawaii's ali'i. It was called the supreme seaweed. Its scientific name is Asparagopsis taxiformis. We talked to CEO Alexia Akbe of Symbrosia about the promising work underway. This past month marks two years since the company moved its operations from Connecticut to the Big Island. The Natural Energy Lab in Kona is now its new home. We're working on seaweed production as a feed additive for cattle feed. Um, and the reason that we're doing this is to reduce the cattle's environmental impact, so their methane emissions, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. And when we add a little bit of this 
tropical red macroalgae. It's native to Hawaii and a lot of other places globally. When we add that into their feed, just like a very small percent, we call it just a sprinkle, we're able to reduce that source of greenhouse gases by over 90%, which is really drastic. And that's why there's so much popularity and hype now around this solution because methane from cattle and other livestock are responsible for anywhere from like 6 to 10% of total global emissions. So any opportunity to reduce that source could be pretty impactful in terms of slowing down the rate of global warming and climate change. So who is using the additive? Are there um, ranchers here that are adding it to the feed? Yeah, so we have two partnerships, one ranch on Hawaii Island and one ranch on Maui that we've begun working with. And we've done two smaller trials prior on the mainland before moving our facilities here full time. But we are in the early stages of development. So, you know, we're still doing like small implementation trials on farms, but we have now prioritized Hawaii farms. And we're working with the feed mill over in Hilo to to process our product with some other actually invasive species from Mauna Kea gorse into like a final feed product. So it's really been fun working with other partners in the state, working towards food sovereignty and feed sovereignty, especially following kind of the COVID-19 supply chain shocks that we saw that affected most notably the hog, the pig industry. But it's just good to be sovereign on, on food and feed. So tell us, I mean, how does this process work? Do you take the seaweed, do you dehydrate it, mix it in with other stuff, and then you just sprinkle it in their in their food, like salt and pepper kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. It's a flavoring. So the seaweed has been utilized in Hawaiian food for a long time as well. It's called limukohu. It's actually really notable. So it does have like a flavor, distinct taste to it, but we grow the seaweed at Nauha on land, land-based systems, kind of similar to how they grow spirulina over here or that bioastin, the astaxanthin product that a lot of athletes in Hawaii take. We use the same systems and then we dry it and process it into a flake currently, or we're also working on pellets, so a couple of different variations, and then that gets added in the middle. So we do the pasture system, so beef grazing systems, we'll add that. Right now, we're working on precision seeding systems, so like a little shoot where the cow can put their head in and get their dose of the seaweed in addition to any other products that the farms are interested in adding to their diet. Well, do we know if they like this stuff? I mean, I don't know if they're picky eaters or uh, how does that work? Yeah, when we do small amounts, they like it. I guess no one really wants to eat like mouthfuls of seaweed. It does have a pretty distinct taste. So when we do the smaller inclusion ratios, we usually don't have much problem. Although, you know, in a group of like 100, maybe one or two are a little bit more difficult. The picky um, eaters, more picky than yeah, others. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And how does that work? I mean, do we know, does it change the the flavor of the meat when you, you know, bite into a steak? I mean, I don't know. It, you know, a lot of people put, you know, furikake on their popcorn. Does it affect the end product, the beef you buy in the store? So it's such a small amount in the feed that they've done like a tasting panel before of the beef that received the seaweed and, and beef that didn't. And, you know, there was no notable difference in taste that humans could detect. So it shouldn't change the product at all. And then is it better for you? Uh, I think it's way too early to say <laughs> on that. But we are seeing, you know, notable health improvements in the livestock that the seaweed really help manage their, like, internal, their microbiome and their stomach. It helps with other kind of, I guess, 
pathogens and diseases as well. The seaweed has a lot of natural products, antiviral, antifungal, antibacterial, all that kind of stuff. So we are seeing small improvements there that the farmers or farm operators have commented back to us during the small trials. And then is there any place else in the world where they're, where they're experimenting with this or doing research on this? Yeah, so I think you mentioned Australia. That was where the original research came from, and we collaborate with that group out of James Cook University and CSIRO, just like the Australian Commonwealth Research Institute, so a state research agency. There are some in Europe, some others in New Zealand, and then us here in Hawaii all working on this issue. And it is like a competitive industry right now, but we are trying to increase collaboration just a little bit to, <laughs> to make sure that we're all keeping the main goal on site here, which is really to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and make a more sustainable option in terms of beef and dairy. Is there any one particular country that's ahead of another? I would say it's really early currently. Being here in Hawaii does really give us a leg up for growing algae productively. You know, the year-round consistent weather makes a really good location for consistent production. We've been able to really work on strain selection of the algae and improve its ability to grow on land and that kind of stuff. So, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think that we're doing a pretty great job here in Hawaii compared to the rest of the world. So how was it that somebody figured out that seaweed could cut methane emissions in cows? I mean, it, it you know, at first you, you're going, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. If you look back on some of the, like, ethnobotany research from or, you know, writings from the Pacific, you'll see that actually some livestock owners usually makohu before <laughs> in feed to aid digestion. This was, you know, back in the early 1900s. And then in Canada and Ireland, a number of farmers, sheep actually operators would graze their sheep on seaweed and kelp on the coastline too. And I think there was, you know, some early suspicions that this was really beneficial for the livestock that they were seeing health improvements with seaweed feed. And it's a really great source of minerals. And so it's not uncommon to feed seaweed to to livestock. But then I think that, you know, there was some early research done around methane reduction and improving the productivity also of the animals. And I think, you know, one researcher, this Australian one, finally put everything together and began testing each species and the effect that it could have on yeah, cattle methane production and arrived on this one that was just doing so much better than the others that, you know, instead of like a 10% reduction in methane, they found 90% yeah, that's reduction. That's so, pretty dramatic. Yeah. It was interesting, kind of like a natural organic, you know, over time, mm-hmm. all these effects were noticed until a researcher finally decided to really study that effect. So I guess we're yeah, on to something. Really serves to help promote, you know, our understanding of macroalgae and other seaweeds and how they could be used in general for a number of different use cases. It's good to have like a fire (laughs) under this issue, but there's a lot of research and development being done that could be translated to using seaweed in other ways too, which is really exciting that, you know, there's a, a good reason and funding being poured into this because I think it could open the door for other opportunities as well. We've been talking to Symbrosia's Alexia Akbe about how cows figure into building resiliency as we deal with climate change. It's the promise of Limu Kohu to make cows pass less greenhouse gas. For links to the work underway at Symbrosia, head to our website.
Well, we have to go now, but tomorrow we plan to hear about a new Disney film featuring an Asian superhero. We learn about the director's Maui ties. Want to listen back to something you heard on our show? Find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.